This morning's reading is Psalm 107, which is on page 610 of the Church Bibles. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the land, from east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in the darkness, the utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against the Lord's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their troubles and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for the, his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through iron bars. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he gave the, get, saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with jo songs of joy. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it drew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. He turned the rivers into a desert, flowing springs into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into a salt waste because of their wickedness of those who live there. He turned the desert into pools of water and parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed fields and planted vineyards that yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them and their numbers greatly increased and he did not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers decreased, and they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste. 
but he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 19 says this, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, this would be true for us this morning, that what we hear from your word would be pleasing uh, in your sight. Help us to hear, to understand, and would this move us to praise you always. Amen. So there was a, a husband once who could see that his wife was upset, and so he asked her, well, what's the matter? And she said, well, you never say you love me. Do you love me? And he, he was mortified, and he said, well, of, of course I love you. Um, you, you know it. I, I, I love to hang out with you. We do all these things together. The fact I don't say it doesn't mean it's not true. Um, it's precisely because it's so obvious. The fact that I don't say it should be reassuring, you know, that I still love you. I promise, if it ever changes, you'll be the first to hear it. Now, I'm glad to hear that this sounds absurd to our ears. So when I tell my wife, Naomi, that I love her, I'm not doing it to reassure her. Um, I say I love you every day because, well, precisely because it's obvious. Um, I can't help it. It's part of me delighting in being her husband. But sadly, I'm sure we know of some marriages where that, that's not the case. I, I remember growing up, uh, there was a woman for whom this was very painful. Uh, that however committed her husband was to her, he never, ever said he loved her. It's very hard. And I wonder if as Christians sometimes, we can be guilty of the same thing with God. We're very much committed to him. We come to church every week. Uh, we sing songs. We read his word, we pay, pay close attention to the sermon. We talk about him with one another, we teach our children. We pray, we share our needs, and we remember to say thank you when he answers them. But how much do we actually praise him? How much do we tell him we love him? How much do we marvel at his goodness towards us, at the life he's given us in Christ? How much can we just not help ourselves to praise him in all circumstances, in our personal devotion, in good times, and in bad times. And this is where the book of Psalms is a real gift from God to us, because it speaks in all circumstances. It speaks to those marveling at the wonders of creation, and it speaks to those who are in fear of their life. It speaks to those who have experienced the relief of rescue and it speaks to those who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It speaks to those who lament their sin, as well as to those who are experiencing the joy of complete forgiveness, and so on. Through all of these, the Psalms reminds us of God's goodness, and it points us to the only correct response, which is praise and worship. Now, having said that, a lot of the time, psalms can also be misused. We, we can have a tendency maybe to just pick the ones we like the look of. Or, or maybe we'll take one just to fill in a gap, maybe a gap between two sermon series or in our reading. Just take a psalm, any will do. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I'm not saying that just reading a chapter on its own in isolation is a bad thing. On the contrary, we'll learn a lot about God and about ourselves. But what I do want to do is to go as far as say that only doing that will be a, a slightly impoverished way of reading the Psalms. Because you see, the Psalms, just like the whole canon of Scripture, was written by many people over many, many years, and they were compiled into one coherent book. The people who compiled them didn't do it randomly, just took them as they came, but they put them very carefully and deliberately. And so, rather than being a collection of discrete, completely independent Psalms, they're meant to be seen as a continuous reading of Psalms, starting at chapter 1 all the way to 150. It'll only take you about five hours to read in one go. Anybody done that? I haven't. Again, I'm not saying that's the only way to do it, but I hope I can persuade you that by failing to see it as a whole book and seeing the whole Psalms together, we will miss out on some of the riches and the depth that we would miss um, by taking them in isolation. Put together, what they do is that they spend their time quoting each other, referring to each other. They also draw this wider picture of Israel's history and therefore God's salvation history, of which we are part of. So over the next few weeks, what we're doing is coming back to a series on Psalm uh, and picking up where we left off at the end of uh, chapter 106 and going straight in at 107. Right, so that was quite a long introduction, so let's go straight in. Let's hear the first three verses again. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. It's a very long psalm, and yet the psalmist doesn't waste any time. He goes straight to the core of what he wants us to hear. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The Lord has done amazing things, wonderful things for his redeemed. Now, the redeemed are, are his people. They're the people that he has rescued. We are the redeemed of the Lord. We are his people. And what are the redeemed to do in response to that? Well, they are to praise him and give thanks to him. And that's our first point today, the first and main point. The Lord has done wonderful things for his redeemed, so they are to praise him always. Now, for those of you who have a really good memory and can uh, remember from last summer, you'll probably hear some echoes from the end of Psalm 106. Let me just read you 47 or just look up a few verses, same page. So, uh, verse 47 of the previous psalm says this, Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So that psalm is describing the people in exile because of their sin. God had warned them to turn back to him, to turn from their sinful ways, to stop their evil. And so Babylon came, destroyed Jerusalem, and took the survivors away into exile. And that is where they are crying out, Save us, Lord, gather us from the nations. But now, notice in chapter 107 what they are crying out. Tell your story. Tell how he has gathered you from the lands. Chapter 107 is therefore speaking now into a post-exile context, a time when God, having punished his people, hears their cry 
and comes to their rescue and brings them back into the land. In many ways, we could spend all our time just in those three verses. Um, but in order to help bring the message home, the psalmist does, decides to go and expand on it and draws a pattern, which you may have picked up as we had the reading, a pattern of repetition of four um, stories, if you like. So verse 2, some wandered. Verse 10, some sat. Verse 17, some became fools. And verse 23, some went out. So we have four different stories with very much repeated verses. Now what he is doing here is not necessarily just bringing our attention to exact stories of individuals of some of the Israelites I would have had. Rather, he's telling more about a pattern of what God is like and how his people ought to respond. So let's have a quick look at them in turn. So starting at verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. So he's describing people who are lost and who are homeless. They're hungry, they're thirsty, and their needs are not being met. And so what do they do? Verse 6, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. They were wandering and lost. Now he shows them the straight path, the right path. They were homeless and without a city to settle in. And now he's given them a home and a city. They were hungry and thirsty. Well, now he satisfies their thirst and fills the hungry. And so what is their response? Verse 8, let them give thanks to the Lord. No doubt this will be reminiscent to us of the Exodus. We also did a series on that last uh, autumn. The Israelites were wandering in the desert wastelands. No city, hungry, thirsty. They cry out to God and he satisfies their needs. He brought them into the promised land. He gave them food and water. What about Hagar back in Genesis when Abraham had to send her away with her son? She and Ishmael wandered the desert. They were hungry, thirsty, their lives ebbing away. She cries out to God. He delivers them from their distress, gives them water and a city to settle in. So yes, it does bring to mind specific actual events in the Old Testament narrative but it also shows this broader pattern of what God is like, his loving kindness and his deeds for his people. So then moving on to verse 10, the second story. Some people are in darkness. They are prisoners and in chains. Now, whereas in the first story, the people are wandering through no fault of their own, here it's very much due to their guilt. They rebelled, verse 11, against the Lord's command and they despised him. And therefore, God is the one who brings this calamity over them. Now, that suddenly smacks a lot more of the exile, doesn't it? The people of Israel have turned away from God, and so he gives them into the hand of Babylon. They may not have all been in chains and actual darkness of prison, but some of them certainly were. And figuratively speaking, they've been defeated, they've been taken away, they are living in darkness. So what do they do? Well, they cry to the Lord with the words, I suppose, that were popularized in the 1970s from Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. Notice the identical language that we have again from the first story, and which is it gonna be used again in the next two stories. Four times, 
They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. Four times the right response to God's rescue is given, giving thanks for their unfailing love. Yes, these could be actual events, but what the psalmist is doing is hammering home a point he wants us to get about what God is doing. They cry out in their trouble. They cry out in their trouble. He saves them. He saves them. He saves them. Let them give thanks. Let them give thanks. Let them give thanks. Then in the third story, in verse 17, uh, again, because of their iniquities and rebellion, they became fools and suffered affliction. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. I mean, it's obvious. If you don't eat food, you're going to die. But that's exactly what sin does. It makes you foolish, and it makes you make bad choices, which ultimately leads to death. Psalms 14 and 53 say, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Isn't that a description of the people of Israel? and of their kings. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, he thought he was wise. He thought he'd ignore God. His choices brought him to the gates of death. He ultimately died a prisoner in Babylon, folly leading to death. Yet there are those who cried out to the Lord, verse 19. And what did God do? Well, he sent them his, his word, verse 20, and he healed them. It's interesting to note that it shows that we cannot cure ourselves for our own, from our own folly, but that we need God's word. He alone can make us wise. He alone can give us life. A great example of this is Miriam in Numbers 12. In her foolishness, she had the presumption to challenge Moses along with Aaron. Moses was God's chosen leader, and so she was therefore also challenging God himself. And so God punished her by striking her down with leprosy. It's a death sentence, bringing her to the gates of death. And then what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. And this is what they said. Do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. And what does God do? Well, he rescues her from the grave. He heals her. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind even when they don't deserve it. And finally, the fourth uh, story from verse 23 is about some sailors. Now, they do not seem to be guilty of anything in particular, and yet God stirs up a tempest, verse 25, just by speaking it. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. It sort of makes you feel a little bit seasick just reading that. My seafaring experience is pretty limited to crossing the English Channel a few times. And I remember a particular one back in the days when the hovercraft used to do it. Now, the thing with a hovercraft is it goes on the water as opposed to through the water like most boats. And so it needs the sea to be very flat. But on this crossing, it was very rough. And the crossing still went ahead. And this description is exactly what it felt like. As we would go up the wave, it felt like we were going up to the heavens. And then the hovercraft would go over the wave and we would come down on the other side, down to the pit. It was dramatic stuff. People were sick left, right, and center. It was spectacular. Do you know the two stages of seasickness, by the way? First is pretty bad, 
It's where you feel so sick that you start to worry you're going to die. The second stage is far worse. You feel so sick that by now you start to worry you're never going to die. But these sailors are not experiencing that there's some, something far worse than mere seasickness. They are at their wit's end, we're told, and they know they're about to die. And so verse 28, what do they do? They cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. And just like that, the sea is stilled to a whisper, the waves to a hush. Doesn't that remind you of Jonah? Jonah disobeyed God. He runs away from the pres his presence and boards a ship. And so God sends a great wind and a tempest that threatens to break up the ship. The sailors cry out to the Lord, and Jonah tells them that it is on his account, and he makes them throw him overboard. And just like that, the storm is calmed. Let them give thanks for the Lord, for his unfailing love. There goes that hammer again. So in the context of God's redeemed being brought back from exile, these four stories, whether or not they are bringing to mind specific events in Israel's history, or maybe even things they would have experienced, they're telling us something more broad about how wonderful the Lord is and the wonderful things that he has done. And it talks about the response of the people, that is to praise him and to give thanks for his unfailing love all that in spite of their rebellion. And so as God's people, God's redeemed people today, this shows us the Lord's unfailing love towards us. So just take the last story, for example. It reminds us of Jonah, but surely it also reminds us of the Lord Jesus, how he calmed the storm in the Gospels. A sudden furious storm comes, Matthew tells us, waves sweeping over the boat. The disciples cry out, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. It's no wonder that the wind and the waves obeyed him. Genesis tells us that he created them just with a word. And so when he commands them to be quiet, well, they recognize his voice and they obey him. And what that shows us is his providential rule over the world. He controls everything that happens in it. He is able to rescue his exiles. He can rescue his people, and he has done that for centuries, and he is doing that today as he gathers them together to himself because of his unfailing love. And that is why we can and we must cry to him for help. And so that's our second and briefer point. The Lord displays his loving rule over his world and the redeemed so that they may pray to him in any need. Now, we've already heard that hammering. They cried out to the Lord in uh, 4 to 32 in the first half. And that is the right thing to do. Ironically, that is what makes people wise, crying out to the Lord. Because God is willing and is able to rescue them. He's willing because he is good. Remember verse 1? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. He's always good, but he's also able. He rules over the world, he created it, and he is intimately involved with everything that happens in it and to the people in it. And so, in the same way we've had four stories in the first half, well now we move on to four, uh, I, I call them tableaus or scenes, 
from verse 33 onwards. To start with, we have a picture of calamity. He turned rivers, so this is verse 33, he turned rivers into a desert, flowing springs into thirsty ground. That's very much a picture of calamity, of curse, a blessed ground, which is now a desert. That's exactly what Adam experienced when he was um, thrown out of the Garden of Eden. But then the second tableau straight away after, 35 and 36, does the exact opposite. He turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. We suddenly now have a reversal of that initial calamity and we now have a picture of prosperity, a return to Eden. This is exactly the language of Isaiah 51. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will, take, uh, and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Then the third tableau moves on to another prosperity, 37 and 38, as the Lord this time blesses the people also, and he multiplies them. But then with the fourth tableau, we have another scene of calamity, as the people are now no longer growing, but they are shrinking. They are suffering through oppression. The Lord is the one who brings all of these, the calamity and the prosperity. And a question, I suppose, for us is, will we believe in his goodness throughout? Will we cry out to him in our need? And will we believe that he is in control through the good things and the bad things? When Naomi was in labor with our twins, things got complicated. I'm no medic, but I knew that something wasn't quite right. And at one point, the midwife said she just needed to pop out to get some advice from a colleague, and she had a reassuring smile. But when she came back with three midwives and three doctors, well, they weren't smiling. And it became a frantic hive of activity, uh, doctors looking very serious and making calls of immediate emergency uh, surgery. And so within minutes, she was taken away, and I was left alone in this room. Even the bed was gone. And the silence was deafening. Now, in those moments, fear and worry can make you feel like you're losing your mind. I couldn't think straight, and, and in my desperation, I just repeated to myself that God was good. God is good. God is good. Now, I didn't make sense at first, but the remarkable thing is that after a few minutes of repeating it, I actually came to a point where I genuinely believed that he was good and that I could trust him whatever happened, even as this was going on. And in his kindness, it did all go well, and we were able to leave the hospitals a few days later as a family of four. So is God just good when things end well? Well, I guess fast forward a few years, and another pregnancy didn't end so well, but with a miscarriage. So is God still good then, when calamity strikes? It was the day before my grandmother's funeral, which added another dimension to our sorrows. The greatest comfort came through the reading of another psalm at the funeral, which reminded us of God's sovereignty and his unfailing love. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. No matter how long our days, whether a few weeks or 90 years, we are precious to and known by God. Now, why have I told you these stories? Well, I want to draw our attention to the fact that we all have stories to tell. We all have stories of calamity and prosperity. And the question is, what will you do with them? Will you cry out to the Lord in your need? Will you praise him for his unfailing love towards us in all circumstances? The psalmist only had about a thousand years of history to draw on. But we have seen God's unfailing love in more dramatic ways with the cross. God heard the cries of humanity and rescued us by sending his son Jesus. That is how he is still gathering the lost today. Lost and rebellious people. And my prayer is that we will not be like the foolish person of verse 17, but like the wise of verse 43, and heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. Let's pray. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your unfailing love, for your wonderful deeds to all mankind. We ask that we would be those who would see and know your goodness and would be those who would tell our story, that we would encourage one another and that we would be in a habit of praising you in all circumstances as we await the Lord Jesus' return.